Turn with me to Exodus chapter 22. Exodus 22. If you remember from last week, if you were here, we normally go verse by verse sequentially. But because of the layout of this passage here, we divided it up a little bit. So we're going back to the verses we skipped, skipping the verses we went over last week and finishing up the chapter. So we're going to look at verses 18 through 20 and then uh, verses 28 through the end of the chapter 31. So Exodus chapter 22. And this is, again, if you're visiting or if you missed the past few weeks, God is giving Moses the law. Started Israel by bringing them out of Egypt. Now they're at Mount Sinai. And as a new nation, they need to know what to do. So God says, I'll tell you what to do. And this is the process of him giving the law of how they were going to live and, and run their nation. So in verse 18, it says, You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. Let's go down to verse 27 or 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer the first of your ripe produce and your juices. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. Likewise, you shall do with your oxen and your sheep. It shall be with its mother seven days. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be holy men to me. You shall not eat meat torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. If you're interested in what happened in the middle of those two verses, uh, you can get a copy of last week's sermon. It's on our website where we go over that. Pretty odd verses, aren't they? Every time I come across these verses at the beginning of the week, I think, where's the sermon here? This seems very distant, very sort of just random, and how does it apply to us? But by the end of the week, guess what happens? You study hard enough, and the truth comes out. And so every week when you come, to, that's what good thing about going through Exodus, some of this stuff just seems unprofitable, but with enough meditation and work and study, all scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable. And so you're going to see that happen today, to the best of my ability. And at the end of the service, I'll be in the back. I probably didn't get a chance to talk to you today, but I'll be back at the I'll be at the back of the service or church till about one o'clock. So plenty of time for everybody in here to stop by and ask me that question that you're going to have. Don't walk out while I'm waiting for you back there. So line up and ask the question that will come up during the sermon. This passage is about purpose. Once I got a hold of that concept, I realized, well, that's, that's what everybody wants, isn't it? Purpose. What's the point? What's the point of even being in this world? Purpose sometimes is hard for young people to figure out because they don't know where they want to go. But often for older people, everything they had purpose in is gone. Now what? Those are just two sides of the same coin. You start out with the wrong purpose and you're going to end up later realizing too late that it was the wrong thing. So what God does is he gives us a better way. And he starts out by giving it to Israel and then we'll see how he gives it to us. Israel was to restore the marred image of God by becoming true worshipers of God and by becoming holy. But when they failed, which we don't see in this passage, but we know that's where the story heads to, when they fail, Christ came as the true holiness, true Israel, and through his sacrifice made the church holy. 
And our purpose is to live out his holiness. Okay, so let's unpack that. So three things, Israel's purpose, Christ's fulfillment, and our purpose. So in these verses, God says, here's who I want you to be. The key verse, I think, is there at the end of verse 31, the last verse of the chapter. I think this is the key. And you shall be holy. You can use the word men or people. Uh, It's sort of generic. You should be holy people to me. Small verse. Doesn't mean much. We don't use the word holy much. But what God is saying to Israel, he's saying, this is who I want you to become. This is the purpose for your nation. America had something like this back in the 1800s. It was called the Manifest Destiny. It was the destiny that was apparent to everyone. Turns out not everyone agreed on it, but a lot of people did, and it was it was manifest to them. It was clear that this is where America should be headed. And it was basically take over the whole continent, sea to shining sea. Once they had that purpose in mind, then they knew what to do. Build railroads, uh, subjugate people who are already there, take their land, so on and so forth. Once you have a purpose, everything else is just steps to get there. So God is saying to Israel, you're a new country. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know what kind of nation you're supposed to be. Here's your purpose. Be a holy nation. Be a holy people. And everything else around this, and in the whole book of Exodus, is just God telling them how to do that. But the purpose is there in that one verse. So he says to them, uh, you are to be a nation of true worshipers. That's what 18, 19, and 20 are. Three capital crimes here that, that were to be destroyed. Sorcery, bestiality, and false sacrifice. What do these things have in common? All of them are saying, God can't do it for us. We're going to find another way. God's not strong enough. God's not powerful enough. God's not good enough. God's not trustworthy enough. We're going to find another way to get what we want or need. So with sorcery, this is not talking about Harry Potter. Just put that out there right away. It's not talking about pretty much anything you know about magic. Because everything we know about magic in America was created by fiction writers in the past few hundred years. Maybe a thousand years. This is 3,000 years ago. Sorcery was a way to control nature or know the future apart from God's power. It was using supernatural abilities that did not come from God to control things and to know the future. The words used previously with, with Pharaoh's magicians, they were sorcerers. And what did they do? They tried to do the things that Moses did without God. And that's what a sorcerer does. It uses supernatural power that doesn't come from God to get what they want because God couldn't do it. You see, that's the fundamental problem here. It's not uh, what they were doing as much as why they were doing it. They wanted power. The sorcerer wanted to know the future. They wanted to be able to control, protect, whatever. And so they said, God can't do it. We'll use some techniques. We'll use some manipulations. And God says, that can't exist. That's false worship. That's seeking safety, trust, power, and someone outside of God. Then it says uh, bestiality. Now, what does that mean? You shall, it says you shall, anyone who lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. Put it in context. This is ancient, the ancient world. 
It's not modern America. In the ancient world, gods were often portrayed as animals, especially in Egypt. They would have like a dog's head and a human body. You ever seen things like that? The, the sphinx was sort of this animal creature. And so often pagan cultures would use sexual perversions with animals to control fertility, to control the gods. In other words, taking something good that God had given and manipulated it to their own ends. God is saying, you can't control me or the world through perversion. That's what they're trying to do here. And then finally, he says, anyone who tries to worship or sacrifice, he who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he should be utterly destroyed. Sacrifice was giving up something in return for something. And everyone did it. Everyone still does it, just not with animals. So what he's saying here is you give up something to a false god so that that god will give you what the true god wouldn't give you. Or to manipulate. All these three things have the same thing. You can't trust God. You've got to do it on your own. But look at the penalty. Death. Destruction. That last one, it says, he who sacrifices to any God could be translated, he shall be sacrificed. Why did God have to kill these people? Because he was making a nation that was in the image of God that trusted God, that worshipped God, that looked to God as holy and perfect and good. And these people were undermining that. And because it was a political situation, they had to be removed from the community. The, the community couldn't be holy if people were actively undermining it by saying, you can't trust God, you need to do these things. Now, that, that principle applies to us today. God helps those who help themselves? No, that's not in the Bible. That's a manipulation tactic. God will meet you halfway? No, he won't. Do what you can and God will make up the rest? No. That's sort of saying, like, you do what you have to, and then God has to meet you. You can't manipulate God. We don't use magic anymore, but we use other things. It's saying God can be trusted both as powerful enough to take care of us and as good enough to give us what we need. And when we get something from God that we don't like or we don't get something from God that we think we need, a true worshiper will say, that must be what's best. And it's so important that if you lack that, you lack the very concept of who God is. You're no longer a true worshiper. Then he goes on, that's uh, verse 28. You shall neither revile, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. This goes back to the same principle. Who's in charge? Who is powerful? Who can be trusted to take care of you? God. But if God can be trusted to take care of you, then that means he is a kind of God, an authoritarian God, a God who has power and dignity and rights. And by recognizing that you can trust God, you don't need to manipulate or go around him, you also recognize that he deserves certain respect. If he's the most, if he is all-powerful and omnipotent and trustworthy, then our words should reflect that. And that's what this verse is talking about. It's talking about the words. How we talk about God. How we honor God. This whole chapter started out in, verse, in chapter 20 when he gives the Ten Commandments. What does he tell the people? Before he gives the commandments, he says, 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Then he gives the law. So understanding who God is and what he's done means you will respond with words in a certain way. Now, we don't use the word revile there, but it can, it can mean something like disrespect or make light of or blaspheme or whatever however you want to talk about it. It means to diminish who God is. But he gets even more uh, particular. He says, nor curse a ruler of your people. That's an odd connection, isn't it? Because we know God's perfect, but people are not. So we understand we don't disrespect God or speak poorly of God, but why not political leaders? They're not God. They're certainly not perfect. What's the connection here? If God is all-powerful, then guess who controls everything? God does. And the Bible specifically says, and especially for Israel at this time, God set up Moses as the leader. He sets up Joshua. He sets up the leaders. It's a delegation of God's authority to people. And so he says, when you curse or you speak against the ruler of the people, you are speaking against God. Now, it's not disagreeing. Notice the word curse. It's not saying I disagree with policies or behaviors. It's speaking ill words that diminish the respect, the honor that God has given to a position. It's a lot harder to do than to respect God, isn't it? But you see what God's not letting Israel say? We respect God, but we'll curse the leaders. We'll honor God, but we'll dishonor Moses. We'll honor God, but we'll speak poorly of the judges. God says, no. If you respect me, you respect the leaders. It is practically, it's, it's sort of a practical holiness. Saying you believe something, it's not the same as actually believing it. If you believe it, it'll change the way you live. And that's what God is saying. Here's how it should change it. Paul refers to this verse in the, in the book of Acts. He gets brought up on trial for preaching the gospel, for preaching in the temple, and he goes before the Sanhedrin for the high priest of Israel. Now, remember, Paul is a Christian. He's not under the law. He's not required to sacrifice. The high priest has been done away with. There's no need for a high priest. Christ is the high priest. So Paul's standing before the high priest that way. He says to the high priest, here's what I've done, and I've done everything that God has told me to do. And the high priest said, well, I don't like that because we don't think so. So he tells the soldier next to him to punch uh, Paul in the mouth, which he does. And Paul says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. If you've ever been punched in the mouth, that's a pretty tame response. Then someone says to him, that's the high priest. You know what Paul says? He says, I'm sorry, I've sinned. I didn't know you were the high priest. God says you shall not curse a ruler of your people. Now apply that to your life. We'll get to it back to it in a minute. If Paul apologized to the false high priest who falsely accused him and abused him, how are you responding with your political leaders? Not Paul doesn't say, I agree with him now. No, he, he did not agree with him. He thought he was totally wrong. But to put a curse on him, God will strike you. That was cursing a leader of the people, duly appointed by the people. And honoring God means honoring his delegated authority. And so God has given them a national calling. He says, you shall be holy men to me. And the verse 29, 30, where he says, give up the first fruits. That goes back to honoring God's authority. He had saved them. Now they give back to him what was, it, what was his to begin with. Recognizing that God is holy, 
They sacrifice to God. They trust God so that they would become holy. That's the purpose of Israel. When you read the Old Testament, this is the purpose of the entire Old Testament, is to make Israel into a holy nation, to make them into what Adam should have been. Adam, made in the image of God, marred by sin, Israel was supposed to replace Adam as a holy people. Now it says there, you should not eat meat torn by beasts in the field, you should throw it to the dogs. Seems random, doesn't it? No, it's God saying, you're going to forget that you're what you're supposed to be. So every time you see a dead animal, every time you take a bite of food, you're going to be reminded that you're different. It's God making things practical for Israel. Isn't that what everybody wants? Practical? God is saying, let me make it real practical. You're going to be holy, even down to the food you eat, so that every single meal you have reminds you of your purpose, to become like God. And when you see a dog, dogs in the Bible are, are, are used to refer to unholy things because they eat dead meat. If you've ever seen dogs, they eat anything. They're actually designed by God to eat rotting flesh. And they're supposed to see that and say, we're different than the world. We're supposed to be holy. So even the food we eat will be different. Constant reminder of their purpose. That's what God's purpose was for them. That was his plan to create something beautiful that had been lost and to help them do it by daily reminders, by constant help. What did Israel do? So when we preach from the text of the Old Testament, you can never stop here. You always have to figure out what happens next. It's like studying American uh, political, uh, the way the America's political system works. You can't understand what's happening now if you stop looking at history and say 1865. You said, I studied American history up to 1865. I haven't looked at it since. Now, how do we understand the political landscape? That wouldn't make any sense, would it? So what we've done here is we've gotten up to a certain point in history, but we're way past this. So to understand the Old Testament, we can't stay in the Old Testament. We have to go later in history to see what it meant, what the big picture was. That's the blessing of being a Christian is to know how the story ends. But what we see through the Old Testament is Israel never did any of this. They practiced sorcery. The king himself went to a witch and summoned up Samuel, the king. They sacrificed the false gods. They sacrificed their children to false gods. They rebuked their leaders. It doesn't take very many chapters before you see people being killed for rebuke, for, for cursing God, for cursing their leaders. Israel couldn't keep these standards. They did withhold their offerings. The book of Malachi is talking about, will a man rob God? Yes, by withholding what he says to do right here. They did eat dead meat. They did all the things that God said not to do. They failed their purpose. They did not live up to it in any way, so much so that God removed them from the land. So that gets us to the end of the Old Testament. None of this worked. But God's purpose hasn't changed. He just went about it a different way. So in the New Testament, what do we see? Same purpose, restore the image of God. Restore the lost image of God in a different way. Same image, but not through Israel. That's what Christ is. Christ is the solution for all the failures that people make. Christ is the second Adam and the true Israel. The first Adam 
marred the original image. This, the first Israel couldn't live up to it. So Christ came as the second Adam, the second Israel, the true Adam, the true Israel, by nature in the image of God. He came in the image of God. He didn't have to become the image of God. Colossians 1 says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. See, Israel had to become holy. They weren't holy, and God says, I want you to become a holy nation. Christ came as a holy person. He was holy from the beginning. So he was the second Adam. But he also, by his own works, lived as a holy person. You see, Israel had to work their way towards holiness, practically living it out bit by bit, growing. The minute Christ came to this earth, the minute he started working, it was perfect. That's why I had the story when he was 12 years old. He was already teaching the leaders. The minute he started teaching, it was perfect. All of his works were righteousness. He was the true Israel, the Israel who kept the law. Not the Israel who fell away, the new Israel, the true son of God. So knowing who Christ is, see you see what the Old Testament was working towards. It was showing that the law couldn't do it. People certainly couldn't do it. So Christ came at the end of all that, perfectly fulfilling everything in Exodus that man couldn't do. Perfect image of God, the perfect holy person. But that doesn't help us, does it? It shows us the glory of Christ. It shows us the perfection of God. It shows us the magnificence of God coming to earth. But we're still stuck. So when Christ comes to earth, he doesn't just live and go back to heaven. He lives and dies. The gospel is the solution to Exodus. See, Exodus doesn't help us. It just presents the problem. It shows us the problem. It says, be a holy nation. And we read it and we're like, can't do that. So Christ says, I'll be holy. And we still say, but we're still unholy. So Christ says, I'll die for you. I'll wipe out your past. I'll wipe out all the unholiness by taking it on my own person. But then he's raised again. See, the gospel is not just about Jesus forgiving your sin. It's about uniting with Christ. Union with Christ is the salvation. You see, you don't need just your forgiveness. Because what's the purpose? The purpose is to restore the image of God. Forgiveness does not restore it. Forgiveness does not restore the image. There has to be something more, and that's what union with Christ does. You see, he forgives our sins through the substitution, but then he gives us his righteousness. It says, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. That's who he is. And you, is what he does, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind, fallen, marring the image of Christ, of God, Yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. To do what? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Christ's death forgave our sins, but also lets us fulfill the purpose. The union with Christ restores the image of God in us through his work. Everything that Israel had tried to do, had hoped to do, Christ does for us. He does it 
the church as a body. You've heard the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Well, I think it was a Christmas song. It's really a great song. We should sing it more often. The last verse says, Adam's likeness, Lord, efface. Stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy love. Adam's likeness, that marred, sinful, wicked image, efface it, take it off. Stamp thine image in its place. Restore what Adam lost. Fulfill what Israel failed to do. That's what Christ does. Not what we do. What Christ does for us. The only way we achieve that is by union with Christ, by faith in Christ. And God gives it to us. So that's Christ's fulfillment. That's what we call the gospel. But how does it apply to us? What's our purpose? Our purpose is not to accomplish what Christ accomplished. But we do have a purpose. You see, there's two purposes available to every person in this world, but only two. Every person in this room has two pur- one of two purposes. The first purpose is for non-believers. So let's say you're not a Christian here today. Maybe you pretend to be one. Maybe you're not openly. You're not a believer in Christ. You're not united with Christ. You're not a Christian. You have a purpose. Here's what your purpose is. Romans chapter 9. What if God wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That's the unsaved. That's the lost. That's the non-believer. Your purpose as a non-believer is to be destroyed, to show God's power. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. When evil enters the world, when sorcery, when bestiality, when false sacrifice enters God's community, God must destroy it to create something pure and holy. So it's a warning to you. If you're not a Christian, God's purpose for you is to be destroyed. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. For God to create holiness, he must remove wickedness. So I warn you, I I call to you as a non-believer, don't let that be your purpose. There's another purpose. The church. God sent Christ to change the destiny of the church. Those believers who would trust in Christ, God changed their destiny. He gave them a new purpose. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. See, there's a new purpose. Not to be destroyed, but to seek Christ, to be lifted up into heavenly places, to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, to restore the image of God, he sent Christ. We can't achieve the image of God anymore. So we achieve the image of Christ, our mediator, our go-between. Christ died for us. Christ is our holiness, and now we're conformed to Christ. We have been given the gift of conformity. Not to the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So Christ has given us a new image. How is the church conformed? We go back and we look at the Old Testament. We see the example there. Honor God and word and deed. Romans chapter 12 says, Appeal to your brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy, acceptable. Remember what he said? Don't offer false sacrifice. Don't try to manipulate God. It's the same today. You give everything to God and you expect nothing in return. So you sacrifice it. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, not as a living negotiation, not as a living bargaining chip, not God, I'll do this, so you'll do this. I'll give, so you'll give. No, it's a sacrifice, trusting God, knowing that God will take care of you. If he died for you, he'll take care of you. So we offer bodies as a living sacrifice. We don't sacrifice to false gods. We don't give our bodies to work. We don't give our bodies to people who are not married to. We don't give our bodies to family. We give our bodies to God because we trust God, not because we expect anything in return. That's what it means to honor God. It means to honor God in word. Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. God doesn't say, just believe the right thing. He says, the way you talk about your president, your congressperson, your state executive, reflects what you think about God. That's hard to hear, isn't it? In a country that's designed to separate us. News media that's designed to divide us, to turn us against the opponent. Social media that by its very nature teaches you to fight to say things that are disrespectful. Whether that's President Obama, President Trump, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Congressman Senator uh, John McCain, those are your elected leaders. Those are God's appointed leaders. They may be immoral, they may be wrong, they may be communist, they may be fascist, doesn't matter. They are in authority and you will respect them if you respect God. If Paul can say to the false high priest, I'm sorry I disrespected you, then certainly we can do it if we honor God. Do we trust that God is in control? Do we truly worship God, or do we feel like we need to take care of the problem? It's not enough to just say they're wrong. We have to undermine them. We have to tear them down because God's just, he's, he's waiting for us to make, make America right. No. The same goes for within the church. Elders are God's appointed leader in the church. Do you speak respectfully of the elders? Or do you feel like you need to keep them in check? I don't sense this is a problem in our church, but I don't know what you talk about when you're not around the elders. The elders may be wrong, but their position is given by God. And if you trust God, he'll handle it. You confront wrongdoing, but you never disrespect people that God has put into place. You remove false worshipers. This church is to be a holy church reflective of Christ. It cannot tolerate false worship. It cannot tolerate Christians who don't follow Christ. So we have church discipline. Church discipline is not about being mean and punishing people. It's about creating a group of people that follow Christ. And we find people within our midst who do not want to follow Christ. We remove them. We don't kill them like in the Old Testament. That's not the job of the church. But to allow them to flourish in our church is to say this church is not here to worship God. It's here to make people happy. It's here to avoid conflict. 
Church discipline is about removing false worship. And if we take God seriously, and if we understand Christ's sacrifice for us, we'll take church discipline seriously. And it means we'll discipline ourselves. We'll live an intentional life. Colossians 3.12 says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Notice it says put on, not put on holiness. It says put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. You are holy and beloved if you're a believer. You don't need to become that. Israel had to become it. Christians don't need to become it. If you believe in Christ, you're holy and beloved. Now put it on. That's what he's saying. You have a status. You are in Christ. God loves you as much now as he's ever going to love you. He loves you as much as Christ. There's no more to love. You are totally accepted as Christ is. And he's saying, so live it. Not to achieve it. You've already got it. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness. Live an intentional life that seeks to become who you already are so that your life matches your status. You see how God says, even in the food you eat should teach you to be holy? We bring that into the New Testament where it says, all of your behavior should be there to remind you of what you've become. Habits that remind us of who we are. Two, to end the service and move into the Lord's Supper. How are we to be reminded of who we are? Colossians tells us at the end of that chapter, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? How? To which indeed you're called in one body. You want to be holy? You have to do it together. You cannot restore the image of Christ to follow Christ to be holy if you're not together. God saved the church. He didn't just save you. He died for the church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Live out that holiness. How? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. If you paid attention in our service, that just described our worship service. What do we do when we come together as one body to hear the words of Christ? We teach, we warn, we sing with thankfulness. That's our order of service. You want to be like Christ? You come together. You sing together. You pray together. Listen together. You warn each other. If you're not doing that, then you don't truly want to follow Christ. Just like in the Old Testament where God says, you want to honor me, then honor your leaders. You want to honor me, then you eat certain foods. Now in the New Testament, he says, do you want to honor me? You want to be like Christ who saved you? Come together and talk about it. Worship Christ together. Have rituals in your life that regularly remind you of what you have become already. That's the worship service. And the primary part of the worship service, the ritual that reminds us, is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is that reoccurring food that we eat. Remember, the don't eat food torn by dogs or by the, by the wild animals. There's something about food that reminds us. So God has instituted the Lord's Supper to remind us not what we need to become, but what we already are.
how often we should take the Lord's Supper? How often do you need to be reminded of who you are? How often do you need to be reminded that Christ has saved you to sanctify you, to make you holy? So when we come together to eat this, we come as one body, saved, committed, wanting to follow Christ, and needing a reminder of it. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's not for people who haven't sinned. It's not for people who've done well. It's not for people who've actually followed Christ. It's for people who want to follow Christ, who have been sanctified not by their works, but by the blood of Christ. And now we come together to remember, to remember not what we've done, to remember what he has done. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of not your works, not your sin, and remembrance of what he has done. You see how this is such a good thing for us? A ritual that should be done over and over and over again? Not to become holy, but to remind us that God has saved us, and now we live it out. Let's pray.